0: Hi, I'm Angie Brown, and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast. The podcast where I sit down with everyday, but by no means ordinary, thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. Benny, Cara, thank you so much for coming and having this conversation with me in this series of podcast interviews about being luminary and I am talking about being luminary in the field of diversity, equity and inclusion, which sounds probably grander than I mean it to be. And I have chosen to talk to people who I feel have got something to offer other leaders and other people who are diving into this field, maybe something for people who are feeling unsure of the work and I thought you would just be the perfect person to come and talk and have this conversation. So Benny, can I ask you to introduce yourself to people who are listening?
1: Thank you, Angie. It's really good to be here. And, and for the record, I think being a luminary is, is almost the perfect word for this work because it very much is around shining a light on some of the darker corners of, of, uh, of our society and bringing forward um, what has been maybe overshadowed. So, going back to the introduction, I'm Benny. Um, I am a deputy head teacher at a school in Derby. Uh, I'm an English teacher by trade Um, and, you know, recently I um, have been doing lots of work on diversity, equity and inclusion. In 2017, um, I co-founded Diverse Educators with Hannah Wilson Um, and since then I've also written a book, uh, which is the Diversity in Schools book, which was one of the first of its kind talking about, you know, direct practical experiences of, you know, and, and examples of what you can do in schools to promote diversity, equity and inclusion. And I'm on track to write a second book, The Diversity in the Curriculum book, which is due out next year.
0: Fantastic. And I was really excited to see you talking about your book, The Little Book of Diversity in Schools, because it is a bestseller.
1: <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, you have to take these things with a pinch of salt. It's a bestseller in bilingual and multicultural education, which I feel is quite niche. We'll take but- I'll take that. And, you know, it, it, considering how many books are published each year, you know, and being in the top 5,000 books sold on Amazon is is a testament to the fact that people want to talk about the issues and they want some guidance. And, you know, where, where some of us are doing this work, I think it's really important to make sure that's disseminated in an accessible way to people.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So, Benny, I really want to have a conversation about how you've come to this work and where you're going with it and so it would be lovely if you'd be prepared to share i guess where diversity equity and inclusion matters or topics touched upon you and your origin story
1: something that i've considered for a really long time and i think it's partly because i would say my people my ancestors um, certainly, kind of in the last couple of centuries, have been very nomadic. So, kind of originating from uh, the Gujarat, and then getting on the dows and, and sailing across the ocean to Africa, following the gold trade. My family, um, my so certainly my mother and my grandparents and my father and 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 his parents on his side, all being born in Africa and being part of the kind of colonial story, and then and then moving to the UK. I've always felt like, you know, I haven't really got kind of a fixed nationhood. Or well, I, I certainly felt like that when I was growing up, you know, was I Indian, was I African? Was I British? So this idea of like the question of place has always been part of my my thought processes. And, and it's very much something that my mother experienced as well. And she told me recently that when she was in Africa, it was when she was about sort of six years old, she realized that she wasn't African or she she couldn't be African or certainly that she was made to feel like she wasn't African even though she'd been born there mm-hmm. and there were lots of political troubles and there were lots of racial tensions um and so she pinned her identity on kind of um the motherland as 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 it was known at the time she went to a a school where she had English teachers um and so she felt an affinity with England And so, when she found out that they were leaving East Africa and coming to England, she said it felt like a homecoming. Mm. Um, And then she got to uh, (laughs) she got to England, and the National Front were marching outside her door, um, and telling her she didn't belong there either. And so, my experiences are 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 not that. You know, I I didn't grow up like that. But that kind of questioning of 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 who you are and where you come from and and where you belong has been part of my story from the beginning, and in some ways has been. Quite destructive, you know i I've written before about how my rejection of my home culture and my home language started really early, and where that came from, I guess there isn't a single source. it was this understanding that being Asian being Gujarati in in Western society was something to not necessarily be proud of kind it manifested in odd ways you know a kind of absolute refusal to go to Gujarati school to learn. You know, the intricacies of my own language and, and choosing mm. French and, and being really clear that I'm choosing French because I think my home language is backward. And so, you know, I, I feel like I've had kind of the, the those adverse effects of not really feeling like I belong to a particular place and manifest later on. And then certainly as I grew older, becoming really conscious of, you know, literally where to stand in a room. And I've spoken about this before when I went to college. I I was born in Leicester and I was educated in Leicester, and it's seen as the multicultural hub of the UK. And it was absolutely divided. In fact, my college common um, room—you could literally draw a line down the middle, and all of the Asian people would be standing on one side, and all of the white people would be standing on the other. Wow! And it was—it was pretty stuck. And nobody had told us to do that. It was just the way it was. And it was often divided in subject lines as well. So the Asian population of the college were doing kind of maths and the sciences and the white population of the college were doing like, predominantly um, you know language arts that kind of subject and there I was as an Asian woman doing English French and history going right now which side of the room do I stand on <laughs>
0: literally where do I go literally wow. where do I go?
1: I sort of hovered around the middle
0: <laughs> how fascinating
1: yeah so there's all there's been I, you know I don't think I've ever come to this work as a victim but I've certainly come to this work with the absolute understanding that belonging is something that I have had to consider in the way that some other people don't and I think that's not just true of race and and culture I think of it's it's true in terms of sexuality so finding that people's reaction to you um, changes according to kind of what you define as your sexuality Mm so I'm a woman but I don't you know I'm I'm bisexual and I was in a predominantly been in relationships with women Mm. um and then how does that place me there there are some men who don't know how to treat me well you're a Mm. girl but i you're not interested in me so how do i how do i function where do you fit in the narrative of of Mm. my life so you know it it is something that fascinates me it used to keep me awake at night Mm. so now i think
0: so that's really really interesting and and i i really am particularly gripped by what you said about your kind of rejection of. Say language lessons, choosing to do French instead, and your positioning of yourself then outside of a culture, outside of a home space, outside of a group. Can you talk to me a bit more about that that insider outsider role that you've played, and, and where it where it manifests itself? And I, I guess I'm really interested in that bit of of when you've chosen to to place yourself as outsider, and what kind of context that comes up in.
1: I think you know. Certainly, at that point, um, I went to a school where it was ninety-nine percent Asian. It was a really Asian community, so there was an element of me placing myself as an outsider in rejecting, you know, my culture, mm. um, and perhaps there was a little bit of arrogance there as well. That you know, I wanted to be different. I wanted to be seen as, you know, and, and I say this with with no ir- irony. It's better, mm. um, you know, and my understanding of what better meant. Mm-hmm was not doing a home language it was doing a you know it was a european language that mm-hmm. somehow that would elevate me um above my peers mm-hmm. um and there were there were issues with that in in itself you know i i wasn't necessarily kind of part of the in crowd at school mm-hmm. um i was seen as slightly different what
0: and were the I in crowd doing out of interest in
1: your school uh, they were they were going to gujarati school they were yeah. they were you know doing gujarati gcse they yeah. were kind of following perhaps maybe some of the the, what we might consider to be stereotypes and because I'd set myself this I don't know whether it was a conscious thing or an unconscious thing this this task of being different yeah I felt different I wanted to be different um you know that that feeling of being an outsider started quite early yeah um and I grew comfortable with that quite quickly yeah. what I wasn't comfortable with is what happened when I left my very Asian community and then went into a world where actually there was a mix of cultures and suddenly I had to place myself in a completely different way mm. um and that uh, in some ways was quite damaging um because I think that's when you start to get uh, a real exposure to some of the inequalities and some of the kind of perceptions and the problematic ideas around race and belonging in culture. Um, and I didn't have that when I was growing up. I just had this kind of belief that, you know, the European way was better. And, I, and, and that's probably kind of just absorbed from the society that we live in.
0: Yeah I mean it just resonates so much for me and I feel like I really feel feel what you're what you're talking about and really recognize that sense of wanting to be different and not wanting to be like all of the other black children and not wanting to be the same as everybody else and definitely having a having that elevation of European you know Eurocentric culture was very important to me and wanting those markers and that approval was really important to me. Can you tell me a little bit about what what happened when you moved beyond that, um, that school into, into a new pool? And what were the experiences that, of, of Insider, Outsider that you had?
1: Well, you know, going away from the kind of college situation, I ended up doing English literature at Warwick. And uh, I would say that there were probably a handful of Asian kids. Um, I cannot think of a single black kid my course yeah. at the moment like at the top of my head I can't think of anyone and so I was thrust into this environment this kind of really intellectual environment with this very kind of you know I, I'm studying English literature and I looked completely different from everybody else and there were Asian people at Warwick but they tended to kind of join um, kind of Asian societies and I, and I didn't I joined English Lit Society um, and was the <laughs> made the make me the vice president, which is testament to how I <laughs> behave in, in most in most of my life. Um, but, you know, I didn't have Asian friends at university. I hung around with a group of almost exclusively white people. It was not necessarily a deliberate choice. You know, everybody on my course was white, pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, but I didn't seek out the company of people who looked like me. Yeah, And I didn't really see that as an issue um again still feeling like there was some kind of difference in me that meant that perhaps I had bettered myself yeah um and that's that's a really hard thing to admit as yeah. an Asian woman oh, I, I really that. really
0: hear you I really and, hear
1: and like you know I recognize the flaws in that and I recognize the kind of self-loathing of my like the, the loathing of my culture mm-hmm. and that completely embedded mentality of you know what is better yeah um when i talk about that um and you know it it didn't even occur to me in that space that i was perhaps cutting myself off from things that were actually quite important to me Mm -hmm. i'd already sort of given up i guess my access to my ancestry by not learning the language that those conversations i could have had with my grandparents about my heritage Mm-hmm. I didn't have the lexicon to be able to do that.
0: Oh, Benny, that is so profound. That yeah. that kind of
1: That's that's the reality Actually, of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. What what I chose to do was replace everything that was true, the truth about me, with something that I believed was better. Mm-hmm. And that message, ugh, I know I, I don't remember somebody telling me that. I don't mm-hmm. I don't remember someone holding a placard saying, you know. To be a good person, to, to be popular or successful, you have to be like, like white people. But I, I definitely felt it early on. I'd absorbed that message. And it really, I guess the first time I felt like an outsider and not by choice was when I did my teacher training. So I did my teacher training in 2003. I was a little bit older than the rest of my cohort. Where, and, where were you
0: now? Were you st- in, in Warwick still or had you had you moved? No,
1: I'd, I'd actually gone on to a graduate training programme and I was doing my teacher training in Canterbury. Again, I, you know, there was no deliberate um, exclusion of me as an individual, but I, I was so ridiculously conscious of my difference mm-hmm. in that environment And to this day, I do not understand what it was that made me feel so marginalized and so unable to access the kind of conversations, kind of the social interactions of some of my peers. I had grown up in inner city Leicester. I'd gone to Warwick, um, which is not Oxbridge. You know, we were very proud that we're not Oxbridge, but I was surrounded by people who had very different life experiences to me. And that was the first time really and no one did anything deliberately you know everyone was really lovely and kind of affable but I didn't fit in I didn't fit into that crowd at all.
0: It's so interesting so nobody did anything deliberately but I guess what I'm hearing is that nobody did anything consciously to ensure that you were included.
1: Yeah and 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 that's fascinating isn't it that that, you know and, and quite often when we talk about diversity equity and inclusion work we talk about allyship and how it's an active process and I was waiting I guess to be included in the way that I had before and I think some of the people um who were with me on that journey perhaps weren't conscious of of the need to do that and I would never kind of sit here and blame individuals for it but I had a very different set of cultural references I had a very different um understanding of the world um and i I was devastated actually I was absolutely devastated because mm-hmm. for the first time I really didn't fit in mm-hmm. um, and that wasn't my choice
0: yeah and it's so I really hear you when you when you say that and I can really feel also when you're talking I can feel the kind of disorientation of that that is so familiar to me and I know so many people listening will also really recognize that first moment that you realize oh my goodness I do not fit here at all mm-hmm. and the, what, what I really appreciate you articulating and noticing is that it is sometimes completely intangible. Mm. Should on paper it should work? Yeah. It could work on paper, but something is missing. And I wonder if, when you look back on that time, can you see things in the light of the work that you now do that could have been deliberately constructed, if you like, to consciously created in order for you to feel?
1: That you did fit in, um, and, I, and I have to be clear. I don't think it was the actual course itself mm. that didn't consider it. It was you know what happens in the the marginal spaces, the yeah. stuff around around the course. You know, you're yeah. socializing, your, um, you know, your your how, how you interact with people outside yeah. of, of the actual program. I I don't know. I think there's just maybe a lack of conscious thought around um, some of the like I think it's like accommodation. I ended up yeah. living with two guys in st- you know, and, and and that's great, you know, I had no issues mm-hmm. with that. Um one of them was Asian, very, very quiet, um, quite introverted. Um and so, you know, I didn't feel like I was surrounded by any kind of allies in in, mm-hmm. in a sense that kind of mm-hmm. there was nothing about my identity in them. So I don't know, I, it's hard to kind of pinpoint individual things that could have been done differently mm-hmm. without it being really obvious that it was yeah. being kind of engineered, I suppose
0: although I'm kind of fascinated by that I I, I often talk about my teacher training experience and there's something in that that I again I think you know it wasn't the course people were lovely and you know everyone was great and I feel like I always have to caveat everything I ever say about anything to do with race or identity with everyone was lovely Everyone (laughs) everyone was doing their best however there was a lack of consciousness I guess about the fact that the training is one dimension and there is something about the intangible nature of well how are we advertising this course to make sure that the cohort is really rich and mm-hmm. really diverse and how are we engineering situations in order that people do feel able to show up and bring themselves to all of the spaces mm-hmm. and I guess that can kind of the work that we're both involved in now is also around challenging organizations to think about some of the peripheral aspects of what they're doing because of course doing the right thing and you've got the right you know curriculum let's say or you're doing the right thing in terms of recruitment but there is just another layer isn't there that that leads to that genuine sense of inclusion for people
1: yeah and and because i guess you know certainly my teacher training when i when i went uh underwent the, the program was very much in its Early stages mm-hmm. um, of its inception, mm-hmm. and you know, I guess now uh, I think there's probably a bit more conscious thought around yeah. identity and inclusion yeah. around it. Um, but at the time, it was very much and kind of without being really obvious about what it was. Um, you know, at the time, it was very much around kind of elite graduates mm-hmm. um, going into into teaching, mm-hmm. um, and by elite, there was meant you know kind of that Oxbridge educated. Mm-hmm. You know, from a particular kind of middle class background um mm-hmm. and there were some of us who didn't fit into that into that mold sure. and I guess some of the messages early on failed to recognize how that can come across and who you would end up recruiting yeah um, but I do think that's been addressed since then but it didn't help for some of us who, who didn't necessarily feel like we uh, fit the mold yeah and even to this day people say to me you're not like so and so from that program. I'm like, yeah. well, yeah. In some ways, that's very true. Yeah, um, but I knew that back then.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Like those those forms of stories, I just find it always so fascinating. And I wonder if if um, if we can segue into how any of that rich, rich narrative and, and like material that you've just shared, how does that show up in the work that you do now?
1: Well, I certainly kind of, you know, as somebody who's always felt like I kind of lived on the cusp. I think I'm interested in marginal spaces and and marginal marginalized voices more than perhaps some people. Um, and I think certainly my intersections and kind of my intersectional identity has meant that I'm kind of looking at things from different angles constantly. And and when you do diversity, equity, and inclusion work, I'm really conscious that I don't limit um, my Discourse to a race and culture because it doesn't it's, it's not it's not authentic of me to to just talk about that as as part of my identity and part of my work you know I am more than just my my race and so I guess you know it, it's been quite a journey in some senses I think I started off not really thinking about race and culture but thinking about gender bias mm-hmm. um, and very early on kind of in my appearances on Twitter um, ended up getting into some arguments around. You know kind of prominent male edgy tweeters and like old boys clubs and that kind of thing which led to a a few heated discussions and (laughs) and rather unflattering articles but you know that's that's where I started this journey kind of thinking about where women's voices fit into educational discussions and educational arguments Um, and it's only more recently that I've started thinking in more detail around sexuality and disability and race and Mm. culture but I do you think that kind of understanding of inside and outside has been such a an integral part of that process mm. um when you have always been on the inside it's hard to know what it feels like to be on that other side um and you know i, I think i've always lived in, in the cusp of the two um and and then you know my my early experiences reflecting on what was missing and the kind of inadvertent rejections of of my culture I think I've made it a goal to ensure that children don't have to shut parts of themselves off to feel like they fit into a society and that's not just in terms of what we teach but how we talk to children um, and and the messages we give them about society as a whole so that was that was a big thing I don't want any child growing up not being able to talk to their grandparents because they didn't think their language was I suppose popular enough or mm-hmm. important enough. So yeah that that's very much formed part of the work I do at the moment.
0: And, and in the work are you finding that it, you are heartened, gladdened? That is it kind of do you feel like diversity equity and inclusion work is thrilling and exciting? Does it give you pause for pleasure or do you feel like there's a lot to do
1: and that it's disheartening at the moment oh got it I mean I I would say it's such a roller coaster there are some days that I'm so delighted with the progress we're making as a people and then some days um (laughs) there I just want to smack my head against the table repeatedly Um, but, but you know when when we do this work I think there's a recognition that you will you will have some people come to the table and have that discussion in a really open and honest way, a really open, authentic way. Mm-hmm. And then there'll, there'll be other people who don't want to sit at the table. And the, I think the hardest part is understanding the reasons why that is. But I've had to do a lot of work in considering the psychology of that in the way that you would in, in any relationship. You know, what why, why is that relationship not working? Well, mm-hmm. quite often, you know where people aren't willing to have a discussion. There's a real fear of kind of losing a sense of self. That that idea that your ego um, is just too too fragile to be able to kind of deal with any perceived criticism. And I say that in the gentlest way. I think we're all guilty of that. And the idea that you know when somebody is talking to you about things that make you feel uncomfortable, that our reaction is often defensiveness. And you know, I've made it a, a a point uh kind of, of the way I work is to try and bring p- people to the table. Um and to be able to do that, you have to acknowledge some of the hurts that might be caused. You might have to acknowledge some of the um reasons for defensiveness um and and to have those discussions in a way where the message can be heard. And I and I that, that it's really important to me.
0: Benny I I just can't tell you how thrilling it is to talk to somebody who really shares that that worldview because it's it's definitely the worldview that I have and 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 so what you're saying really talks to my kind of deepest so a very deep soul level about this work and how how um kind of generative and how how beneficial it can be for humanity just to have that gesture of come and sit at the table and I really want to find out Mm. about you and and so one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in, in your take on this, actually, is sometimes there can be a, a, a bit of a dilemma, I guess, for people around wanting to make that gesture of come and have this conversation, come and talk to me. And also being careful with themselves to not do the do the heavy lifting, if you like, of difficult conversations, for example, around race. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot to be said for not asking black and brown people to do the work explaining explaining why why situations Mm -hmm. are racist explaining structural or institutional oppression and and yet the 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 kind of gesture that you're articulating there that really really resonates for me is does take on quite a lot of responsibility or can take on quite a lot of responsibility where where do you where, where are you with that that dilemma that dichotomy
1: I think I think the metaphor about bringing people to the table is a good one, because, you know, I, I'm bringing people to the table, but I'm not putting the food on the table. Mm. And, you know, this is this is where I've made it very clear that um, I will do some of the work. Mm. You know, I will lay some of that table and I will bring some of those dishes. But I'm expecting you to bring something with you to that table as well. Mm. And, you know, that that's the beauty of sitting at the table in that, you know, somebody will curate what they need to know and, and what, what knowledge they're bringing and they will come with questions okay. and we can have the discussion at the table because there isn't a power dynamic there i haven't got the knowledge you know we, we're sharing knowledge where we're uh transmitting that knowledge between us we're shaping it between us and sometimes that comes with truths you know okay. things that are hard uh to swallow things that are unpalatable we want to kind of okay. keep extending this metaphor. I love um, it. and that's okay because when we sit down and we eat a meal together there are some things that we don't like but we're still eating together and you know, if i have said anything kind of over and over again in the last few months it's very much that well i will provide you with some of the tools but i will expect people to go away and do the work because yeah. it's tiring otherwise it's very tiring yeah
0: i really i really really appreciate what you've just said and um it's making me think of a book by um, a woman called, I think she's called Priya Parker, but there are two books, and mm. I think Priya Parker is the is the woman that I want to reference. And she wrote a book called The Art of Gathering, mm. and and so this table this table uh, metaphor is really really interesting. And she talks about gathering, and it's a it's a different context, but about getting people around the table for almost for a kind of powerful social change for for moments that are really take us all beyond the individual experience that the, you know the, the art of community kind of moves us forward. But one of the things that she says is that um, we have become accustomed to lazy gathering almost that we sort of have parties and we don't really do anything. We just open the door, open some bottles of wine and say, come on in. And actually the art of gathering is very structured. Mm. It's, it's held, it's facilitated, it's carefully thought out. This needs to happen in this moment. This part of the meal is the starter. This moment is where it's important for somebody to stand up and say, This is the next phase of the conversation, and so what you've what you've said has just made me think about the importance of, of of you know when you as you say when you're bringing people to the table, you're not doing all of the hard work, you're not providing all of the food, but there is some safety, isn't there, of 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 holding the space so that people can bring whatever it is they want to bring,
1: you know, and and I think in in any way when someone is a guest in your conversation, you know, in the conversation that I've been having about diversity, I have. Engaged with guests in in many mm. many senses of the word, and there have been times where I've been asked questions um, around the work, um, around what happens when it goes wrong, and what happens if this happens, and you know, like all of the kind of misconceptions and that kind of thing. And you know, the, the answer is always, well, what do you think? You know, you know, how how do you find the solution to that? What do you think the answer is? And as much as I kind of give practical suggestions around some of this work, the the discussion is far more important um, mm-hmm. because that's a process. You can't change people's minds or fundamentally change the structures of a society by declaring that this is the way it is. It doesn't work that way. There's you know, miles to go before we sleep. And like just that sense of it's a, it's a massive journey and ugh, I hate that metaphor. Sorry. <laughs> I tried try not to use it, but it's true. It's a journey. And every conversation is a step, and if I can have those conversations fruitfully for a long time, I feel like that's when there may be some impact over time, rather than overnight.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For those people who are listening here, kind of saying, "Yeah, but Benny, you've just got loads of experience, and you've written a book, and you're, you know, you do this is the work you do," and and I'm nowhere with this. Can you articulate any? any hidden areas, any areas for you that you feel like, oh, actually, I could probably look at that because because sometimes when we talk, it's like we have the answers. And I guess some of these conversations are also for me about just saying we also all have areas that we don't look at.
1: Absolutely. I'd like to sit here and claim I know everything. Um, I frequently do at home, but I I won't lie um, in public. Of course, I have blind spots. Um, You know, as much as I tread a lot of intersectional space, and and i can kind of claim knowledge about certain things that maybe others do, that you know don't because they don't have the same identity as me mm-hmm. you know i'm really conscious that i try to speak universally about diversity equity and inclusion but i don't have the experiences of some of the people who fall into those protected characteristics and even within certain protected characteristics there's such a range of experiences that mm-hmm. you can you can never really know uh, what it's like in in someone else's shoes. Like I know that as a, an Asian woman, I'm I'm never going to have a real understanding of what it means to be a um, a young black man in you know in our society today. Um, and so I think that takes a, a kind of a moment of reflection. That you know when you are talking about the work, that there are things that you won't have lived experience of. And and the important thing there is to do the listening. So I will ask the questions. And I will go and find out, like I said, I will do the heavy lifting for the things that I don't know about. Mm. Um, And that means talking to people and and understanding and and hearing lived experience, but also recognizing that sometimes that's not my story to tell and where I can amplify the voices of others. That's just as important as having my own experience on the table. And so it's really important to me to make sure that uh, people are heard and it's obviously such a lovely bonus that people are now listening and you know I've got a a fairly strong following and the book's doing well Mm. but I'm conscious that there are people who are just as much to say as I have who haven't had that that, um, journey yet Mm. so yeah um, I definitely think there's some work to be done in in amplifying others.
0: Great and so where does Diverse Educators fit with that then and your work with Diverse Educators?
1: I think it's i you am know, i'm I'm so proud of the work that um Hannah has done with diverse educators, and I say that like with with intention because i'm um, because i'm a full time teacher and and Hannah's not at the moment um you know she does a lot of the legwork around diverse educators and she's just a phenomenon in many in many senses you know the the whole point of diverse educators is to take you know the the full experience of uh, diverse diversity equity and inclusion work. Um, And so, you know, some people have criticised and said, well, you know, you you can't fix things with diversity workshops. Mm -hmm. But actually, Diverse Educators has been really carefully curated around who sits at the table and who has those conversations. Um, And the the book that we're writing at the moment, the Diverse Educators Manifesto, is very much predicated on that, you know, Mm -hmm. amplifying the voices of people who haven't had a chance to to talk in public about their lived experience and and how that relates to the education sector. Mm. Um, That you know, certainly we have a lot to learn. Hannah and I have a lot to learn about it. And we're fortunate that we have such a great, strong community um, amongst the kind of diverse educators, contributors, that people are quite willing to say, actually, you've missed something here, or Mm. um, have you thought about doing something slightly differently? So there's a healthy level of challenge, I think, in some of the work that we do. um, And that's been fantastic. And the feedback's been really great. And and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what the end result of that book will be because our aim for it is very much around raising awareness of not just the kind of things that get popular mention in the cult in, yeah. in, in the news. Yeah. Um it's far less sexy to talk about uh, age and pregnancy than mm-hmm. it is to talk about race these days. Yeah. And you know, I, I recognize there's a, an urgent need to talk about race. That's not just me being flippant, but Mm-hmm. those things are important um and there are people who will benefit from that from that input
0: and of course from all of those intersections because you know to to raise the profile of one protected characteristic suggests that we're not all working across so many intersections yeah. of those protected characteristics so many of us so can you just for people that are listening just give a give an outline of the kind of the sections of the book and how you've how that's being organized and who's you know who's involved
1: So we have, uh, gosh, more contributors that I can shake a big stick at, 110 contributors over um, all nine protected characteristics, Mm -hmm. uh, according to the Equality Act 2010. Mm -hmm. So the book is structured around the the protected characteristics, and each chapter has 10 contributors, and there's a a chapter on intersectionality as well, as well as kind of Hannah, um, the the editorial space that Hannah and I will occupy. Mm -hmm. Each chapter has uh, ten contributors, and they're all talking about their perspectives on that protected characteristic as it relates to education, as it relates to teachers and young people working in in schools. Um, and we've got such a range of contributors. So we've got you know working teachers, we've got um, international teachers. We've you know cross the phases. We're looking at charities who support the work. We're looking at university researchers, um, and just a, a phenomenal group of people. Yeah. Amazing, um, and, and and i'm really looking forward to kind of going through the editing process they're, they're all busy writing at the moment mm-hmm. so um we've got a few weeks left before some submissions and, and then we'll start to be able to shape it
0: exciting how exciting so um i've just kind of drawing drawing this conversation which has just thoroughly delighted me to a close um soon and i and i have um a question that i I'm asking everybody that's been involved in these conversations, and that's what would luminary diversity, equity, and, and inclusion work look like for you or for, for your organization?
1: I think, certainly, broadly speaking, I think luminary work, again, taking that kind of idea of like shining a light, mm. is a process of truth gathering and acknowledging that there are truths that you might not be comfortable with. Um, so you know the questions you ask of yourself as a, a teacher, for example, is what are the truths of our workplace, what are the truths for the adults and what are the truths for the children um and and recognizing that a truth for someone else might be completely different from your own truth um and and where where schools are starting this journey, there's a, a real importance there's a, there's a real focus needed on admitting where there are like you said, blind spots where where perhaps we haven't paid as much attention as we needed to. Um, And that quite often comes from asking children. You know, children are really, really incisive and insightful about what the gaps are in kind of diversity, equity and inclusion. I find it and very, very frank and honest about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there needs to be a process of selflessness, you know, that sidelining of ego. Um, If we sat down and listened to hear rather than to respond, I think you know we get much further in this process, and you'll see it in spaces like Twitter, where you know it, it's not a conversation; it's a it's a combative uh, kind of one on one in some some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then that process of education. So you gather your truth, you put your your ego to one side, and then you fill your mind with the things that you don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, you find the answers to your blind spots. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think any organisation that's going through the process of kind of incorporating diversity, equity and inclusion, they've got to have those three things embedded, a culture of truth gathering, a culture of selflessness and a culture of self-education. Where you get that right, you know, you get you do get the productive conversations and you do have the, the decisions that are not tokenistic and it becomes more structural as opposed to performative. But without those things, without the acknowledgement of people's truths, without putting our egos to one side, without learning, you know, any one of those pillars uh, knocked out means that it's it's not a fruitful journey for anyone involved.
0: Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much, Benny. Um, is there any final encouragement that you'd offer a leader who's at the beginning of this journey and is thinking, "Great, I've listened to you to talk," and I. <laughs> Don't know where to go. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do, but I feel really compelled. I feel really drawn to doing this work.
1: I think you know, question as to why you know what it, what is, what is, what brings you to it, Um, and if it's. I hate to say this because I think obviously you know people have their different reasons for coming to the work, but if the answer is you know George Floyd's murder, you're not in the right space yet. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's there's a broader message. There's a broader issue. Um, around diversity, equity, and inclusion that needs to be addressed in our in our structures in society. But I would also say that don't think that any one of us who are, you know, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, started off as an expert. You know, I started off essentially rejecting my own culture um, and believing that my language was worthless. You know, that kind of internalized racism was my starting point. And yet here I am, having gone through this rec- recognition of of all of what happened and I've had to do a lot of work around questioning where my assumptions came from where my messages came from um and then just reading reading everything yeah that's you know that's the best recommendation I can have
0: and you don't just say that as an English teacher
1: no (laughs) (laughs) No, I say that as someone who voraciously absorbs stuff yeah you know that's how I find things out and there's a lot out there, and and if you if you really 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 want me to plug my book, obviously there's I my book. I think probably <laughs> do. <laughs> yeah. I wrote a book, and it's not just me that thinks it's good. People on Amazon think it's good as well, so it's got some good good reviews. So yeah, there's a reading list at the end of the book, um, and I found that as a I found that was a really helpful starting point for some of the work I was doing around even just writing the book, mm. formulating my own thoughts. So start there.
0: Brilliant, thank you. So, Benny, your your current book is called A Guide for Teachers Diversity in Schools, and it's available from places that you would normally get your books from.
1: Yeah. Where can people sure. find you on the socials? On the socials, you'll find me lurking on Twitter at Benny Kara B E N N I E K A R A. And yeah, I for anyone who's expecting really highbrow content on my Twitter it goes from obscure archaeology to cat memes very very quick. There's some
0: cats, I've definitely seen some cats. Yes, talk.
1: There's, there's <laughs> a, <laughs> occasionally I get tired of being so serious but um, so yeah no feel free to come and have the conversation and, and at the moment actually one of the things I'm doing is tweeting a book a day um, for yes. kind of how to change the world so you know Books that are going to give you information that maybe change your perspective on something in a protected characteristic. So, this month it's all been women, we've done race and culture and, and LGBT the last couple of months. Um, and I've got some Padlets um, ready to send out as well. So, people can have that collection if they Brilliant. want.
0: Brilliant. And I really recommend, I love following Benny on Twitter. Um, and there's always something of interest that she's saying about something of interest so (laughs) I definitely recommend following Benny and the other place to find you is on the diverse educators website
1: so you on the diverse uh, educators website yeah yeah, absolutely www.diverseeducators.co.uk great Um, and there is a wealth of information on there all um, in protected characteristics but there's resources Um, we put out gosh I think Hannah puts out two blogs a week from contributing um, writers so it's well worth a look. Uh, It's really a one-stop shop for diversity work at the moment.
0: Fabulous. Benny, I've enjoyed this conversation so, so much. It's touched my heart and it's galvanised me and it has lifted my soul. And I always love talking to you, but um, really, really have enjoyed this. So thank you so much for spending the time. I really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.